Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is Drew Harper. Uh, Drew is the co-author of the book Space at the Table, Conversations Between an Evangelical Theologian and His Gay Son. Uh, his dad, Brad Harper, is the evangelical theologian who is the, is the co- other co-author of the book, and Drew is his gay son. So um, it's a fascinating book, uh, very beautifully written. If you've not read this book, um, and especially if you're interested in the LGBTQ conversation, I would highly recommend Space at the Table. Drew, I met Drew a few years ago and just, um, yeah, we just really hit it off. I remember he uh, came over to my house. We had talked on the phone. And then he came over to my house and was just instantly like jumping on the trampoline with my kids and was it just diving into deep conversations. As you'll see, Drew is a extremely intelligent, creative, colorful, authentic individual. He is literally one of the, my the most favorite human beings that I love being around. So um, now if, if you need a neat and tidy podcast conversation. This is not that conversation, so I encourage you to change the channel if you're uh, uncomfortable with uh, perspectives and maybe even language that goes outside the box of how evangelicals should think and or talk. Um, this is going to be a very raw conversation, so I think most of you at least will enjoy it. Some of you, this might not be your cup of tea, but uh, I am so excited for you to get to know the one and only Drew Harper. Drew Harper, <laughs> good to see you, man. Good to see you, oh, too. man. Thanks so much. For, I, I've been wanting to have you on this podcast for many years now, so this is this is a, a long time coming. So thank you so much for sparing your time. Are you at a coffee shop? Where are you, by the way? I am at a coffee shop. It's a San Francisco chain that has just recently opened uh, here in in West Hollywood, and it's very it's very like hot bougie kind of like it feels like san francisco it's big and full of light there's lots of like you know woke straight men with planned parenthood totes reading like bill bryson books you know like it's very that so um <laughs> bill wait so bill bryson is he uh part of a woke straight white no older men no no, vibe no. Bill, <laughs> bill bryson is just canon that's all he's just american canon yeah he's uh he's a great uh i think it, uh, he's a he's a he's a commentator uh on american culture okay. with uh uh a, a good uh following among most people who also read the atlantic you know okay 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 i tried reading some of his stuff and it's good it's just it was information overload it was just so much Content, content, content. I feel like I was being smacked over the head with like Wikipedia or something. Yeah, yeah. that's why I don't read him. Yeah, okay. yeah, no <laughs> but, real, no I, real art. Uh, I didn't. Yeah, he's not my, he's not my guy. But, um, but he's he's at home here in the coffee shop. So okay, all right. <laughs> well, Drew Harper. So you, so you know, I've talked about these actually a few different video clips that I've shown in many different places that I've spoken on LGBTQ plus. Um, questions and conversations and so i it's it's fascinating it might be even more fascinating for you that you have probably <laughs> helped shape the thinking of tens of thousands of christians across the country and you have made whole rooms erupt in laughter because you probably don't even remember the clip but <laughs> you were when you were like talking about 
we've been raised in this real like pro-Semitic kind of like environment. And you said the Shema eight years old and, and you listen to a lot of Neil Diamond, a lot of Barbara Streisand. <laughs> and then you imitate right. your best friend's mother who's from Tel Aviv. And then your yeah. other friends were from, who are, you know, from like Egypt and stuff. And people were just rolling, dying. And, and for some people, I will say for some maybe older, very conservative people, it, it may have been the first time they have thoroughly enjoyed the humanity of a gay man. I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming that I don't want to project, but I mean, yeah, no, I'm talking to people. I, people were like, it, oh. you know, all of the, at least you put a dent in some of the fear and disdain, uh, that some, some Ooh. Christians might have toward, um, LGBTQ people. Anyway, that's amazing. I, I love to hear that. Um, obviously it's very, it warms my heart and it's also flattering. Um, interesting, like to your point about whether or not these super conservative people have ever, um, enjoyed the humanity of a, of a queer person, uh, and had, had that make them laugh and feel good feelings. Probably they have many times, but they weren't aware of it. This is probably a time where they were like extremely conscious of it at least uh because you know it, it in the case of them viewing you know my portion of your content the fact that i'm gay is like what is you know that's what we lead with right mm -hmm. and so there's this sort of these walls and defenses already go up and then i get to come in and like kind of subvert that in a way i'm sure that's really i hope um helpful for them or you know destabilizing a little bit makes them kind of think um but the fact of the matter is is that they've probably enjoyed many many queer mm. people's humanity vis-a-vis -vis their um their years of exposure to american entertainment because right. many songs that they've probably hummed many uh you know quotes from sitcoms and various classic american shows or movies um, are written by, synthesized by, performed by, delivered by gay people. And they may not know that, they're probably not conscious of it, but it exists within the world of their own uh, emotions and they just don't know it yet. So, yeah. That's yeah. brilliant. Yeah, yeah. L let's go back to maybe, maybe not the beginning, like your birth date, but uh, let, let's go back. You were raised... In the church, you have parents that were committed, solid evangelical believers. Your dad was a pastor for many years. It is a, you know, uh, a respected evangelical theologian. What, tell us about your childhood, and it's, especially as it pertains to your kind of discovering your sexuality and how that uh, interacted with your faith journey. Sure. So I'm going to call my dad today and tell him that he's a respected evangelical theologian. He's a very <laughs> he is a respect. He may not he know is. that, but I'll, I'll say oh, that he's a very respected. He is respected, and I love that. And well, he should be because he does the work, and that's what I appreciate about my dad. I respect the hell out of my dad. So when I was growing up, let's see. So when I was growing up, um, long before there was any consciousness of my own sexuality, my own queerness, um, my own difference from what I would understand as the way things should be. There was, before any of that, a profound kind of all permeating consciousness of the love of God and the particular centrality of Jesus in not only the universe and the, and the material world around me as I experienced it, but within, as evangelicals love to say, my heart, my heart of hearts. 
I was a young kid who was captivated by the um, the narrative of Christianity, the narrative of a God who was so profoundly, achingly in love with human beings mm. that he would um, that he would go to the ultimate end of pain and sacrifice in order to make a way for there to be the deepest connection possible between human beings and himself. That narrative was something that uh, was powerful for me, not only in the ephemera of Christianity, the songs we would sing in, in big church or in, you know, Awanas or youth group or at summer camp um, or in the, the art uh, with which I was obsessed from the time I was a kid, art of the church through the centuries, art of the Renaissance, art of, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation art that told these stories that I grew up with, you know, that took them from felt board to the giant canvases and the ceilings of the Sistine Chapel. But also I was captivated by this story because it was mirrored for me in so many ways by the love I felt from my dad, from my, from my parents, from my community, you know, and growing up a pastor's kid, one of the, the the unique things about being a PK, right, is that there's this sort of like automatically provided one-to-one metaphor for like whatever parent is the is the pastor, you know, or the minister, um, the big cheese, so to speak, in the ecclesial community. That person gets to be a stand-in for God in 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 a kid's mind in a kid's experience and you know parents can do all they can to say hey i'm just your parent i'm not god but like you know as a kid we experience i mean you know we all of us in some freudian sense experience our parents as these sort of like larger than life deities but but if you're a pk um there's a real kind of one-to-one simulacrum there and and for me that was great for a lot of kids, that fucking sucks because their parent's an asshole. You know, their pastor parent is like, uh, it's not reflective of what they learn and hear about. Um, or maybe actually they are. Maybe their pastor parent is, 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 is angry and punitive and that's how they understand the scriptures. And so it is, it is reflective and, and there's a parallel there that makes sense, but it's not a pleasant thing. For me, I would hear about this God and then I would experience that same fatherly love in my own home. And that was a beautiful thing. You know, I grew up with my dad as my best friend and I was his firstborn son. I look a lot like him. Um, (laughs) I do. I was, yeah, I look, and I always have. Um, and I, I, it's funny because I'm now the, the age that like my dad was when I was like born and a young kid, you know, and I, I have, I don't know if I'll ever have kids. I really hope to. I, I I would really, really like to have a kid. And I just think about what it's like to have, what it must have been like to have this little human being who looked almost exactly like a copy of you, just like following you around, asking yeah. you questions, wanting to engage with you about the things that you were passionate about. You know, I mean, it must be such a, a, a confidence booster, <laughs> such a little ego trip. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this little human being thinks I'm awesome, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and then, I then they get older and they, 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 they make, they make life more humble <laughs> when they start yeah, exactly. not doing that. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's the old Mark Twain adage, right? I was amazed when I was young. I thought my father knew everything, yeah. you know, 
when I when I was 20, I was amazed at how stupid he was, you know, he had become. And then by the time I was 30, I was astounded at how much he'd learned. We see our parents differently, you know, as we as we age. And that's part of the natural course of life. And it is a natural humbling. I think it's probably humbling for a parent to see their kids say, fuck you. And then I think it's probably I know it's humbling for us for a child to as you you know if you make it if you survive through your 20s into the hopefully slightly more right-sized decade of your 30s you go oh wow man my parents weren't they actually knew a thing or two you know but yeah we we speak different languages at different points you know um so yeah i grew up in the church i grew up with a beautiful um model of christian love through my parents and like i said i grew up captivated by a lot of the the trappings, right? The, the experience of church and of my religion. And, um, I was never one of those kids who was like forced to go to church. Like I always loved to go to church. I wanted to go to church in as many ways as possible, as many times as possible. Um, it's funny, I think now, you know, and we'll get to this eventually, but one of the things I do now, um, focus of my study, uh, something I, I meditate about and, and research a lot about um, in my life is like queer kids who grew up in the church mm-hmm. and, and where we are now. Right. And I find that so many of us in various different religions, not just Christianity, but across the sort of religious spectrum, many of us are like gung ho little church brats when we're kids, you know, we yeah. love, we love the ceremony. We love the pageantry. We love the storytelling. We love the drama of it. Um, and mm. And that was definitely true for me growing up. And so ergo, when I was probably like, when you start to, when you come to the age of starting to feel feelings, right, those feelings that you don't know what they are yet, they just feel weird and different than anything you've ever felt before. I became conscious of the fact that my attractions sexually were not really just exclusively within the realm and and direction that I assumed they would exclusively be. Um, you know, I, I had, I had always fetishized and adored like great women of the screen, you know, which again, is a common thing for young gay boys. Um, you know, the sort of great divas of 20th century cinema, you know, and I would watch movies, actually a lot of like sword and sandal epics, like Bible movies, like, you know, the 10 commandments or Quo Vadis. Oh my God. Deborah Kerr in Quo Vadis queen absolute queen like red headed <laughs> martyr queen like um, <laughs> early church serving like she's amazing <laughs> but it's like those lions come into the arena in ancient rome she just looks at him like oh, damn you. <laughs> um, but uh i i so so when i found out that like my feelings about women in that way were not necessarily the same as the feelings I felt about like other boys or men, you know, when I was 10, 11 years old, um, I was consequently terrified and also angry, I think probably and disappointed. Why would you say you're terrified? Why, why that's a, I mean, I, I hear that a lot. Can you unpack why that word or why that emotion? Like were you hearing negative already kind of negative vibes about being gay or was it just oh sure i mean that was that was something it's it's so that was something that had been around in my consciousness i remember having to ask my dad what gay meant when i was probably eight 
you know, because the boys on the block, you know, were uh, circling me on their bicycles and calling me gay, you know, and I'm like, you know, asking, are you gay? Are you gay? Like, are you? And, and I think I probably heard the word faggot pretty soon thereafter as well. Like, and I remember my dad, the way he explained it was like, it's a boy who wants to marry another boy. And I thought that that was ridiculous because who would wear the dress? And that's just not fair because that's the only point. That's the reason you go to a wedding. Um, <laughs> and so I, uh, I knew that it was bad. But I think also beyond just the sort of like schoolyard uh, taunts and... Um, well, and I should say, I guess that like probably those taunts came from the fact that like I was a very expressive femi child, you know, I was a pretty like fabulous, limp-wristed, over-the-top little, you know, seven, eight, nine-year-old. And, you know, and so the idea that I didn't fit, that I wasn't the way a boy should be, um, had been definitely demonstrated for me in a million different ways, death by a thousand cuts, you know, on the playground. Um, and in school and at church and in Bible, you know, study and, or, you know, a Sunday school, um, all of the other boys let me know that I didn't do it right. Um, but what, what this thing meant, right. What this sudden awakening of feelings meant was it was like a, a much more ominous rumbling of like, oh shit, they're right. And, and this means that. I'm fucked because if, if I don't go the way I'm supposed to at this critical juncture, you know, you know enough at 10 or 11 years old to know that like, all right, thing after this, things start to matter, you know, and you see it in your body, your body starts to change. You look down, you're like, ah, this is different. What's happening? And then you're like, if I make a mistake now, it's like, I'm at the helm of the ship for the first time, you know? And like, mm -hmm. if I'm, if I go off course, Holy God, you know, what does that mean? Um, and it's funny because like the terror, terrified was definitely the word, but like, I want to actually bring attention to something that I had forgotten for many, many years. And I've only recently in the last few years started to remember this. And I think, I guess if, it was probably in some therapy that I've done that I've like <clears throat> been able to recall this, but like, so when I was in sixth grade, um, which is around the time that, you know, well that, yeah, that's when puberty hit, I was at a school in my hometown that was a really cool and unique place. It was called the Vancouver School of Arts and Academics. And it was an arts magnet school that um, was K or was sixth through 12th grade. And it was like, everyone was there for a particular art form. You had, you know, cinema and dance and music and instrumentalists. And it was so cool. Um, and I, I was surrounded by all of these weirdos and kind of unique kids who had come from all over the area to be in this place. And that was where I first discovered my attraction to other boys. And I had a, a friend who was like my, my good buddy that year. And it was really probably the first time I'd ever had a guy friend who was just kind of my, my, my buddy. And I told him about it and he was a straight guy. He was a very like, you know, a fat and funny and cynical and intellectual 11 year old who played classical piano from the time he was three, you know? And he, he told me, he was like, Oh, well, that's, you know, that's no problem. Like there's lots of people like you. There's plenty. Of, in fact, here, let me make you a list of the other kids in school who are like this. It's oh, no wow. problem. And I, and I remember that, that for a week I was giddy. I was so excited that these feelings were happening and it was new and it was different. And I felt like I was this 
beautiful blossoming human being who was going to like experience things and kiss another boy. And, and that actually lasted for a week. And I'm sort of amazed in retrospect that I was able to be sort of like sheltered from the, you know, inevitable and impending sense of doom for that long. But that was like a precious moment before all of a sudden reality set back in and I was like, holy fuck, there's no way this is going to work. So when, when did that set in then like around the same time when you were like 11, 12 ish? Yeah. Like a week later, a week later, I like realized Uh I was like, Oh no. And so at that point I did, and I've, I've talked about this before in, in, in the book that I wrote with my dad, it's one of my uh, favorite little tidbits from my childhood because it displays not only the kind of kid I was, but the kind of home I grew up in which was I, I had a therapist at the time, which is another story as to why I had a therapist. But uh, she was great, a Christian therapist. But I, I, I knew that I was going to have to talk to her about this, that she was going to be able to be the, you know, masterful and, 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 you know, competent middleman between me and my parents, you know, to, to get this figured out. So I figured that I needed to have a pretty good presentation. And so I did my research, right? And I... One day I faked uh, an illness so that I could stay home from school. And my mom was working at the time. So both parents were off doing their jobs. And it was just me at the house. And I got out in the living room. These three texts I had, Bringing Up Boys by Dr. James Dobson of Focus on the Family, right? His, his treatise on how to raise proper young men of God. And, 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 uh, and then I had um, Leviticus, of course, the Levitical law. Right. Chapter 18. And I had done my contextual hermeneutic, you know, and, and, and read that. And, and then I had the collected works of Sigmund Freud from my father's great works of the Western world collection. Wait, right. Real quick. How, how old are you at this moment again? I'm 11. Okay. <laughs> so this little 11 year old, this terrified 11 year old calls his therapist. She doesn't pick up. So I leave a voicemail that says, hi, Dr. Miller, it's me, Drew. And um, I was wondering if we could just talk some time at your leisure because I think that I'm experiencing some aggressive issues that are manifesting in same-sex attraction. And I'm wondering if we could nip this in the bud. If you could just give me a call. (laughs) And it was like fully sincere. There was no sort of sense of irony. I mean, my camp at that point was not exactly self-aware. So like, you know, I just, I called and I waited. And I waited and I waited and I waited. And I think like it was probably later that day that she called my house when I pick it up. And she's like, hey, Drew. She's like, hey, thank I got your message. Thank you. And we've been expecting this, you know, so it's okay. It's not a big deal. We'll talk about this. You know, she was very uh, encouraging and conciliatory, you know, like we, we you know, and, and I, I felt better after that call. But I think I probably also felt worse. You know, because it meant that um, that I was I knew that I was embarking on what would be a long and what was a long, long journey of giving everything I could to squelch and destroy and disassemble and root out this thing that for that brief shining moment, that one week had made me feel like myself. What what did the next few years look like, including like, when did you start talking to your parents? I mean, did they kind of suspect you were gay? That was it. I mean, because this is, this is a while ago too. I mean, this is, yeah. I mean, this, this was like a 90 still. Or 90, not, no, like probably 2000, 2000. So like repair to uh, therapy was still very much kind of the only, the default for 
a Christian response or just or just ignore or or kick your kid out. Like there's, there wasn't a whole lot of real nuanced options at that point. Like yeah, so what did what did your 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 mid to late teenage years look like as you kept wrestling with your sexuality, faith, your place in the world and Yeah. So uh we had a conference with my therapist that week and uh, my parents were incredibly loving and very kind in the response. And they also told me, hey, like, we've got a place, you know, my dad was good friends with through some other, I don't know, I, I assume through like his connections at Multnomah where he taught, but like he was, a, he was friendly with the guy who ran the Exodus ministry in mm-hmm. Portland, the, the ex-gay um, ministry, you know, uh, ex-gay, conversion therapy, reparative therapy. You hear it called a lot of things. Um, it was, and, and also I think it's really important to, to say that, that they're, they aren't all alike and there's mm-hmm. places that are, I mean, like I happen to think that they're all really damaging and, and really, really problematic. Um, and I think that they are particularly damaging and like really absolutely sh- should not have any, uh, ability to have sway over, over kids, you know, kids who are still, uh, forming, um, because I think it's, yeah, I think it's him. I think it's really wrong and damaging, but, but there are ones that are a whole lot worse than others. And the one that I went to was really, as far as like, you know, it was not, (laughs) it's not that it was innocuous by any stretch, but it was, it was a gentle way, right? It was a gentle path. It was me and a therapist in a room talking. Um, and actually I don't even know if he was a licensed therapist. He was a counselor at this place and, you know, sort of presented himself as a therapist. I have no idea what his qualifications are, but he was my ex-gay therapist from the time I was 12 to the time I was 17. And then during those later years, uh, of, of that time, I also went to group therapy, but like, I never went to camps. I never had electrodes attached to my junk and got shocked, you know, for while looking at pictures of gay porn. Like that's a real thing. Like they, they do that. That was pretty, you know, common actually, especially, yeah. The damage was, was, uh, from a really like gentle kind of, which in some ways is, is almost a different and even potentially more insidious sort of like, um, conditioning in my opinion, just because it like, it can really get in there and seep in like a toxin instead of just being this, you know, very blunt instrument that's just poking at you. And, you know, if we're going to pray the gay away, we're going to beat you into it. Like, obviously that's unthinkable and like really difficult as well to deal with. But the five years of just going in and out and in and out of this, like, you know, counseling, so to speak, um, left uh, an impression that I still deal with the resonances of that to this day. And like, I don't know, everybody, we're all like deconstructing everything, right? Like I'm also, you know, I'm a racist (laughs) and I'm a misogynist and I'm uh, a, you know, classist and I'm all kinds of, I'm all kinds of things that I have to just sort of every day be like, oh, yep, there I am. Um, As well as being like a homophobe or like somebody who like hates themselves for being gay, you know, like that's just my particular shade or flavor of like mm-hmm. conditioning but i think we all get conditioned to think certain ways and and have attitudes towards ourselves and others and um but that yeah that was a big part of my growing up i continued to be a leader at church youth group i continued to be on the worship team of our mega church i continued to visit my father's classes at his 
Christian Evangelical University where he taught. Um, I continued to, to in every way, devote myself to, to being a, 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 an open channel through which God and Jesus could eradicate this illness um, and help to, to heal me so that I was what God wanted for me and, and designed me to be, uh, so I thought. Um, and that lasted until I was 17. And when I was 17, two things happened. I fell in love for the first time, and I went and lived in a non-Christian country for the summer. So I fell in love with my best friend, and we started uh, having sex and and also like just being in love and having a secret relationship. And then I went and lived in Egypt for the summer um, as part of a study program with the State Department for young people. And uh, And both of those experiences combined to really shake me loose and explode um, my ideas and, and really crumble at, at these things that have been cracking for a while. Um, and when I came back from Egypt that summer, so the beginning, the beginning of the fall of my senior year of high school, I very calmly and matter-of-factly walked into my parents' bedroom and I said, I don't believe this anymore. I'm not a Christian anymore. I'm not going to go to church anymore. I'm not going to conversion therapy anymore or to, you know, Exodus anymore. I'm, I'm done with this. What was their, what was their response? They were like, that's wonderful, honey. We're so glad you're individuating. Yay. They said there's a young agnostics conference in Milwaukee this year. We, we were thinking about sending you, but we didn't know if it was the right move. Now we feel clearly <laughs> that's where God is leading us to send you. <laughs> no, they were like, are you kidding me? They were like, they were like, yes, you're still going to church if you live in this house. What do you, I mean, I think it's interesting. That was probably the first thing was like the clamp down less than like the, and this is understandable. Remember, I'm their first kid. They're still very, they're still young. Like, you know, and I come in and I, I say this and, and there, rather than I think saying, asking more questions or trying to understand, it was more of like a knee jerk, not punitive, but like, we need to control this, right? Control this fire. Um, so yes, you will still go to church if you live in this house. Yes, you will still, you know, and, um, you know, you don't have to go to youth or you don't have to be a leader in youth group anymore, but you're going to go to church and, you know, uh, and that began a period of like just intense conflict and headbutting that lasted all the way until I turned 18 in February of my senior year of high school. And as soon as I turned 18, I said, fuck you. And I got out of the house and went and lived in my friend's basement down the street a few blocks. <laughs> you and I both know this, but just for our audience, I mean, again, this is what early 2000s. Um, your parents would do do it probably extremely differently today. I mean, your, your parents are some of the most hospitable and gracious and, and nuanced when it comes to the LGBTQ conversation. Right. So, um, yeah, whatever image the people might have of your parents in that day and age is probably what every Christian parent would have done. And now I think they're one of the growing number of parents who look back and say, man, we would do it way. We would counsel other people today to do it way differently. But, um, I think, so I think I want to qualify something you said there. I don't think it's what every Christian parent would have done. I think it's what a lot of Christian parents would have done. I think there are Christian parents who would have had a much more um, uh, really hateful and damaging mm. response than my parents did. Okay. And yeah. I also think that there are Christian parents who would have said, oh, great, our kid's gay, wonderful. 
we, he's a, we, there's no problem. Like, I think that among let's, so let's qualify it to say that among American evangelicals, okay. I would say that my parents had uh, a relatively middle of the road, um, common response for, you know, just emerging from the nineties culture wars. And, and, and I would say also that, you know, one of the reasons I'm so proud of my parents and respect the hell out of my parents today is because how impressive is it for somebody to become really nuanced and gracious in a particular um, difficult and tense issue, yeah. um, such as the conflict between conservative religion and, and, and queer sexuality, when they started there? How impressive is that? Not very. It's much more impressive, nor is it actually to me impressive for someone to swing from a you know extremely orthodox and draconian point of view on one side and to come all the way to the other and to just flip and to become a mirror image of themselves like while i would welcome that politically for myself like because i think that's great like the more like christian parents you know who used to be like you know a, a, you know uh fred phelps style homeschoolers who now show up at the pride parades you know with their you know signs of we love our gay kid we love our trans kid yay all the more power to them but like also, what there isn't nearly enough of, and what I'm so fucking proud of my parents for becoming, is people who still struggle every day and yet also succeed more than they struggle to evince graciousness, love, nuance, thoughtfulness, restraint, self-restraint, and ideological openness mm-hmm. in the measure of their own integrity. We can spend the rest of the time unpacking that. Let, let, I want to come back to that because that, that's you're you're, you're uh, opening a, a really interesting door there. I, I'm I am curious, really curious, actually. So I mean, you, you raised evangelical, you know, the evangelical culture. Then all of a sudden, you had this kind of flip. You leave evangelicalism. Now you're you know you're surrounded by many other LGBTQ people. I know you lived in New York for a number of years, so very kind of non-religious kind of environment. What, can, can you help us understand? For th- those of us who are still part of the evangelical church, which is the overwhelming majority of probably people listening, who and, and I would say of that number are also very interested in how can we as a church, um, within the realm of our convictions, theologically or whatever, like like do it much much better. Like how can we change the church culture when it comes to this conversation? I, I'm interested in you helping us understand what is the de-churched, non-churched, unchurched. LGBTQ perception of evangelicals because you lived in the environment and in many ways are still kind of, well, I'll let you, I'll let you, you know, tell your own story, but um, yeah. What is the perception perception of the church? Um, I, I, I would assume it's not very good. Um, well, I would say that there are as many perspectives. I know this is a non-answer, but it's also, uh, it's extremely true. I would say that there are as many perspectives of the church and Christianity among de-churched or ex-churched uh, formerly Christian, formerly evangelical queer people, as there are those people. I find that actually one of the things that I, that I really get tired of is the, the invective and the sort of like imperative to toe the party line around having a perspective or a, a, you know, an opinion on religion, Christianity, evangelicals, you know, all of that, that, that is sort of like within the mainstream narrative of, of gay rhetoric and culture. Uh, and I mean, even those, com- those, those, that word like that, the mainstream of 
gay rhetoric. That's too, it's too monolithic. I would have to complexify that a million different ways. But I would, I would say that like over, there's this overarching sense of like, it's us and them. And that to me is, is not only is it problematic politically, um, but it's, and, and morally, but it's problematic because it just isn't accurate as far as the data, the data to me, from what I see, from what I'm seeing is, and from what I have seen, um, is that there are complex, messy, hyper-contingent and, um, evolving, shifting feelings and opinions about all of this among gay kids who both like grew up in the church and left or grew up in the church and tried to stay or didn't grow up in the church. Um, now I would say that the, the opinion that's the harshest probably, and the most like untroubled or un, you know, uh, uncomplex, uh, is the, that of kids who didn't grow up in the church and who kind of just like, are like, man, those fucking Christians are like assholes and insane. And I'm just so glad that all those old white Christian men are dying because, you know, eventually it'll be our world and not theirs. And, you know, so I just, they can't die soon enough. Um, and <laughs> while I understand this view, um, I, I sort of like lament for it, but I don't lament too much for it because I think that mostly it's just born of ignorance. This episode is sponsored by World Concern. World Concern is a Christian humanitarian organization that is addressing some of the most significant needs in the world today. For instance, there's been a devastating drought that's hit Somalia. I don't know if you've heard about this, but it's become one of the largest humanitarian crises in the world today. Uh, four relentless years of drought have destroyed the country of Somalia. In 2022 alone, over 40,000 people have been killed from the drought and uh, children and, and families continue to have ongoing needs, the basic necessities of life, food, water, and of course, ultimately the love of Christ. So for instance, a, a young mom named uh, Saifia had over 50 sheep prior to the drought. And now after the drought, she only has one sheep, which means she basically has no income and no way to feed her children. And yet this is one of many stories we could tell about the horrific effects of the drought in Somalia. So through World Concern, you can provide urgently needed food, water, and emergency supplies to families in need. 12 bucks can feed a family for a whole month. That's crazy. 12 bucks feeds a family for a whole month. So I invite you to pray. We should always pray. And I invite you to take action. Please consider giving a gift of 12 bucks no, let's say 24 bucks. Let's let's help two families. Uh, consider giving a gift of 12, 24 or more you know, dollars to help families survive this hunger crisis. You can give today at worldconcern.org forward slash theology. That's worldconcern.org forward slash theology to embody the love of Christ toward family and children in need. This episode is sponsored by Biola University. Biola is consistently ranked as one of the nation's leading Christian universities. Biola has over 300 academic programs at both the undergraduate and graduate levels, which are available both in Southern California and online. With leading academic programs like business, film, science, and more, Biola's biblically integrated curriculum helps students grow closer to God and gain a deeper understanding of scripture. In fact, I was just uh, at the Biola campus a few weeks ago. I, I toured the campus and talked with several deans and professors, and every single one I talked to was so passionate about making Christ first in all things. I mean, Biola's quality of academics is well documented. There's no doubt about that. But I was most impressed with how utterly Christ-centered the school is. So, 
at Biola, students become equipped for a thriving life and career. They'll learn how to articulate their Christian beliefs. And most of all, they'll be prepared to serve as God's instrument in their community and around the world. Now, through June 1st, um, 2023, you can use the promo code PRESTON to waive the application fee for any Biola program. Okay, the deadline used to be May 1st. They actually extended it for our audience to June 1st. So get your application in before June 1st. Uh, put in the code PRESTON and get your application fee waived. Uh, some restrictions may apply. Just visit www.biola.edu for more information. So you're talking people that actually weren't raised in the church. They just have absorbed a narrative about the church that you're saying isn't necessarily, at the very least, it's not monolithic. At the very most, there's there's many exceptions to that kind of like hyper-oppressive, hateful, evangelical environment. Yeah, I would say, so what I'm saying is that these kids who, a lot of people, a lot of gay people, queer people who grew up outside of any kind of formal religion, especially, you know, outside of any American Christian or American evangelical religion uh, or religious culture, see um, American Christianity and, and, and evangelicals and probably even just religion in general as being like a really oppressive bad thing and particularly oppressive to, you know, women, queer people, uh, racial minorities, uh, the economically disenfranchised. Like that's, that's what they see Christianity as. Um, and, and I understand that view. I just think that unfortunately it's, it's the result of a really polarizing and cherry picked narrative that emerges out of the culture wars, um, in the post Reagan era. And I think it is also a result of just ignorance. They don't know a lot of Christian evangelical people, you know? So in other words, as you get closer to the coastal elite areas and the secularized urban areas uh, you, you find that this view is more and more pervasive. Now, those people who grew up within the church, right, those queer kids and gay people who grew up within the church, there's a real diversity of opinions. And that's where I was saying the kind of complex, messy, contingent feelings. And I don't, you know, it's not clean. It's not clean. And, and that's why I get frustrated because, you know, I feel like there's not a lot of places uh, there's not nearly as many places as I want there to be for people who grew up in the church who are gay and queer to like really um, wrestle with and, and explore like what parts of that, different parts of that mean and which parts are great and which parts aren't. And um, and instead there kind of tends to be this party line of like, if you're gay, like you need to like speak out against the evil of religion and the evil of Christianity and these things. And I, I don't see it that way. Now, mm. one of the things that was cool about going to rehab in Tennessee last year is that living in Nashville, I was exposed for the first time to the deconstruction movement. And I had no Mm. idea Preston before I went down there. Like, and like, this makes sense, right? Because even though I've been making my way back through kind of like queer radical spirituality, and we'll talk about that later, but like how I, I've been making my way back to being a spiritual and sort of like person crafting my own religion. I had been pretty out of touch with like Gen Z, you know, American evangelicals until I got down to Nashville. And of course in Nashville, it's everywhere. And the kids who I was going to rehab with were all, so many of them were from, you know, these, they've gone to, you know, Oklahoma Baptist or, you know, like they, they went to, they went to church in Dallas and grew up in the, you know, the mega churches there. They, and, and they, they had these, um, these conversations and these words like deconstruction, you know, all that, that they were, 
bandying about. And I was like, this is so interesting. What's going on? Mm-hmm. And so I started visiting some of these churches in national churches. I specifically would seek out churches that, you know, build themselves as kind of like deconstruction spaces. And then I would find churches that like were less like overtly so, but it's sort of been on the fringes of this, like mega churches that had like come out in favor of, okay, we will accept, you know, gay marriage, stuff like that. But we're still very heavily evangelical in their, um, you know, would not necessarily identify as deconstruction places. Anyways, I tried to get as much of a sampling as I could. And it was fascinating to me because I was like, oh shit, the West, the West coast elite urban areas and the East coast elite urban areas, which is where I've spent most of my time. They have no idea that this is happening. And it's like, I actually got really excited. And it's the thing that made me like, want to go back to school for this, want to be like involved again in like a major way. And it's also the thing that made me feel like I could come home again in terms of like really I owning and accepting my identity as an evangelical and an evangelical Christian, regardless of what my sort of dogma is, but because that thing is cultural. That thing is cultural. It's the music we are able to sing along to without ever hurting, having heard the music before. It's the words that we say and the lenses that we have for talking about culture and human relationships. It's the fact that, you know, we can say DTR and somebody knows that that's the define the relationship talk. You know, it's these, it's these little pieces that make up. I grew up in this subculture and these languages make sense to me. And once I could accept that that, was fine for me to be in a space like that with other people who were young and often younger than me and also wrestling with this. And a lot of these people weren't even queer. They weren't even queer, but they were, they were still deeply passionately moved by and like animated by this desire to wrestle with the issues of like social justice of their time, but they weren't ready to throw out the evangelical Christian baby with the bathwater. And that was cool. That's fascinating. When you say, yeah, when you describe yeah, the elite coastal context, and and I've I've only lived on the West Coast, so I, I know the West Coast, not so much the East Coast. But I, you know, I've got friends on the East Coast, and and so I I can kind of absorb kind of their environment a little bit through conversations. But um, it it does feel very binary, like 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 there's there's two camps, and they're really narrowly kind of defined, and you got to check all these boxes, and that's that is the world. It's are you if you're not this, then you must be this. You know, and, and that's that's just so I'm so it's fascinating how you that national context, because that, that would say that's my normal world is where there's layers and layers and layers of complexity and diversity. And, you know, I, I, I meet um, very young, you know, Gen Z kids who, you know, dress like you and are off the chart, super conservative. And I meet people with gray hair, 80 years old, who are either affirming or just absolutely love their, you know, they have like six LGBTQ grandkids that they're, you know, loving, like, you know, so all these kind of stereotypes of, of what somebody must believe, how they must act. They just, I've, I've just always, well, yeah, I've met so many exceptions to this one size fits all monolithic view of, of this conversation, which I enjoy, I enjoy the, the complexity and the the outliers, the people who just don't, maybe they're still in a certain camp, but they just don't fit. They don't check all the boxes off of that camp. So that's how I'm curious, Drew, cause I, I actually don't even, how would you describe your, cause you've been on, so you're, you know, raised evangelical, then left of faith were agnostic atheists for a number of years. Is that without, how yes. would you just, could you give us a, I guess a quick summary of your faith journey all the way to present day? Like where we're, yeah. Where you been? Where you at? Yes, I will. I want to also just comment on what you just said about the, 
the um, the binary nature, the sort of draconian two sides, no middle of a lot of yeah. What I what I'm sort of and again, <laughs> anytime we make categorical statements or categorical descriptions, we're uh, we're obfuscating something or or you know um, making something more simple than it actually is. But what I've been describing is these elite coastal. Um, secularized spaces um, and urban secularized spaces, the ferocity and unforgiving nature of that binary in mm. those spaces is, uh, is very real and you describe it correctly. And there's, um, there's reasons for that, right? There's reasons why that is existing and like the fight against oppression and against mm-hmm. like social, um, social evil, as I see it, um, in, in terms of the things that disenfranchise certain people and that push certain people to the margins and take away the rights of other people, like that, that is a profoundly important uh, struggle. And like the struggle to redefine public space and what it is to be a public citizen um, is really, really uh, important and really, really difficult too. And so, like, I understand why that extremity um, is, is, is in evidence right now. In a lot of these areas that are compelled by, you know, uh, this discourse around how to how to take apart these uh, oppressive systems. Mm -hmm. And yet. I'm so sick and tired. I'm so sick and tired of listening to people talking to echo chambers Mm -hmm. of people who think exactly like them. And talking about it because you know what? It's just as bad. And let me be clear about this. I have certain political convictions and cultural convictions that are way more aligned with what was so, you know, the so-called left, right? But but the rhetoric, the tenor of the rhetoric on the left and on the right is just as hateful. And I'm so tired of it. Okay. I'm so bored of it. I'm so offended by how boring it is. <laughs> and like, I, if there's one thing that just makes me just angry, it's people being basic like that. And, and because it's so easy to get applause for that, it's yeah. so easy to get, you know, adulation or thank you for saying what no one else will say. Yeah. Fuck you. Everyone else is saying that every, whether it's in this flavor or that flavor, yeah. everyone's saying the same goddamn thing. What we don't have a lot of people saying is like, is, is what you just said, which is like the profoundly perplexing and contradictory nuances and layers of people, yeah. people. Yeah not ideologies. It's like, how, and, how much courage does it take to stand up at the Oscars and rip on Trump? It's like, it's just so boring. It's like, I may even agree with everything or some, it's like, exactly. Again, it's like, you know, to go to like a, you know, a fundamentalist Christian conference and rip on the liberals or what it's like, how, right. Exactly. Talking about Trump, about ripping about Trump at the Oscars or ripping about the libtards on Fox news is yeah. the same level of intellectual cowardice. <laughs> I've, I, I've um, said word for word with you because I was raised in fundamentalism and, and, and the, the tenor, the tone, the lack of uh, uh, nuance, the, 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 the zero desire to want to take the best of an alternative argument and wrestle with that or humanize somebody you disagree with or just the broad brushing. And, and when I, you know, when I when I left that, when I deconstructed from fundamentalism and then I kind of maybe swung or, you know, opened the door of my more progressive, I'm like. Oh no! I kind of already been here, done that. I don't want to just do it again with different content, you know. So um, I, I think there is a hungry middle. I don't know. I mean, there's been some studies done on that. I, th- I think I think the loud voices on the extreme both sides maybe they represent a decent number of the population, but I think that number is probably perceived as being higher than it really is. I don't know. 
I hope so. At least that's interesting. I man. believe so. I have confidence um, that it is. I, uh, but I have no, I don't have very much confidence that the tenor of the discourse is going to change anytime soon. No. I think it will have to change eventually, but I think I'm, I, I try to keep, again, this is like what I was saying at the beginning. I'm learning to have low expectations or like low anthropology, if you will, from a, from a Lutheran, almost in a Lutheran theology. <laughs> you got a reformed you know. anthropology. Um, good. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, exactly. So like, but the, uh, <laughs> I think, that, so all that to say that I think that the, the society crumbling and society sort of really falling apart and Frankensteining into various factional non-related or, or non-relating there they'll still be related but they will refuse to relate <laughs> they'll be related as ever but deny it uh vociferously uh factions and and um you know different camps will probably have to really kick us in the ass a lot before we get to a place of more nuanced and open and kind Kind. That's the thing that's really lacking from the discourse more than anything else. President's mm. kindness, mm. because real kindness, real fruit of the spirit, kindness listens before it speaks. It assumes good and has caritas, charitable intent and charitable presumption of the other's humanity. Mm-hmm. It's open to the fact that I might be wrong in ways that I'm not aware of. And you might be right in ways that I had not thought about. And that both of us are doing the best we can with the tools we have. And while like, it's hard, honestly, it's hard. It's hard to talk about this when like, I see my friends, my trans friends getting attacked in the streets. And I hear about it at the end of the day, because I'm supposed to go and have an Arabic lesson with my friend, Habiba Layla. And she has to call me and say, you know what? I just got like, I just got fucking, you know, hate crimed in the parking lot today. So you know, uh, we're going to have to take it slow tonight at tonight's lesson, you know, like in, in that. And I mean, that's, I'm, that's the first example that comes to mind. I could go on and on and on. And like, it's hard in that, in moments of profound political violence, which is, um, we are in that moment right now. We are in a moment of profound political violence and it's hard to say, can we, can we talk about kindness? Yeah. And it's really hard for me to say that too, like, and stand up here as somebody who's on the left and, and speaking as a, you know, as a, as a, whatever, a member of the LGBT community to say like, Hey, can we have kindness in our approach to yeah. other people who are, you know, who, are, who believe differently than us, who, who may hold beliefs that we find oppressive and, 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 and deeply wrong. And yet I believe to the core of my being that means, means our ends, means our ends. And if we don't practice means that reflect the kind of world we want to be in and and live in and and be a part of, then our ends will be half ends. That's that dude, that, that preaches that (laughs) there's some pastors listening that are going to jack that for the next sermon. (laughs) No, really. I mean, that's, that's, it's it's just, that's, you're just summarizing so much of a, a Christian approach. I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the lum- you know the most quoted verse in the Bible by the first 300 years of early church writers the most the John 3:16 of the early church was not John 3:16 it was Matthew 5 love your enemies it is what it is what stood the church apart from the rest of society once Constantine once it became Constantinian Constantinized we kind of lost right. that as yes. as kind of the yes. main heartbeat um, 
Yeah. Well, and why did we lose that, Preston? Why did we lose that? We because be, we got powerful. Him, we got power. And you get a little taste of that. And you get a little story. taste of power, man. It's hard to go back. Exactly. And and here's the thing. That's true for everybody. That's true for everybody. Anytime any of us as a, you know, those of us who identify as a particular kind of collective, whether it's a religious collective, identitarian collective, whatever it is, like when we are oppressed and marginalized as the church was for many centuries, and then when we receive power, right? That's why everybody who's in, that's why everybody today who's trying to do any work here needs to read Paolo, Paolo Freire's The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, right? Like we, we, we need to be reading about and thinking about like the difficult work of maintaining the mindset and the understanding of, of, um, of outsidership mm-hmm. when we begin to experience holding the reins of power in any relationship, be it personal or, 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 or communal social, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. that's a really hard thing to do. And right now as human beings, we're drunk with power. We have mm-hmm. so much power. We hold in our hands, these little things that we hold in our hands, right? At, 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 like we hold so much power and, and yet we are, impoverished in our relations Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and that is reflective in the tone of the discourse so um i want to answer your question which you know from two hours ago when we (laughs) said that that, um you wanted to ask like how did i sort of come back and i'll real i'll do it real quick so basically i went to new york i lived in new york for five years um went to school worked and had a really wild and crazy life, which is again a completely different podcast. But um, I, 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 I lived in the very sort of center of the secularized, anti-religious, intellectual community there, and was very happy and proud of that, and felt like, thank God that I am not like them, you know. Thank God I have somehow escaped, you know. And and that's you know, I was listening to a pod. I, I listened. I've started listening to podcasts for the first time in my life over the last like you know six months. And there's this one that's very popular. It's called My Favorite Murder. I don't know if you ever heard of it. <laughs> no, these two gals. Oh, it's amazing. These two women. They're amazing, and they they're it's it's like a true crime podcast. You know where they tell the story of a murder, or whatever, to each other. You and but it's it's both incredibly like full of pathos and human feeling, but also like really hilarious. But they were talking about. Uh, 24 year olds being, they said, oh yeah, 24, the age when you're just loud and wrong, <laughs> loud and wrong, you know, <laughs> like, you know, and, yeah. and it's true. Like, you know, in your early twenties, you just, you're so excited to first, you know, for the first time, finally feel like, you know, who you are and you want to just like share it with the world and tell everyone else why they're totally wrong, you know, because you finally found the answer, right? It's that Mark Twain quote that we said earlier. So, but then what happened uh, essentially is that my, um, probably Preston, the, the one single thing that brought me back to a place of, of, of being able to practice, being privileged to practice profound faith and spirituality is my drug addiction and my years of dealing with a really lethal and debilitating crystal meth addiction. Oh, wow. And, and the way that that, that 600 pound gorilla that I have carried on my back, tangoed with, arm wrestled with, um, been just fucked by (laughs) and not in a fun way, um, has been the single thing that has brought me to my knees uh, as far as as having to find, having been forced to come back to a place of, uh, I don't have the answers, abject dependence on a higher power, and daily 
ritual, boringly consistent practice of religious acts or religious principles in my life. Now, I use the word R, the R word, as I call it, like religion, religious. And a lot of my friends, a lot of people, a lot of just people who I talk to generally, it really gets a bad reaction. People hate that word. It's such a dirty word right now. Um, and it's a dirty word, not only out in the world, so to speak, but also really in like post-millennial, post-modern Christian culture. Like religion is what we're supposed to not be. We don't want to be religious. We want to be filled with faith. You know, we want to have spirituality, faith. I, to me, I love all that. I get all that. And I also call bullshit because religion is what we do every single day. Religion is what we do religiously. Religion is how we come together as people in the community and figure out how to do this thing called life. That's what we're, and the place where like our ideas and our graspings around ethics and morals and what does it mean to be a human being who's seeking to do good and to live with good intention, where those come together with like the, the, the structures and material politics of the world that we live in and move in every day, that's religion. And, and again, this is another like separate tangent, but I, and I, I can't really go on it now, although I'd love to talk to you about it again another time. But like, I think we actually need more religion hmm. in this world. I think we need more religion, not less. I think we need more different ways of experiencing the things that only religious practice can bring to us, which is a profound sense of faith in the midst of uncertainty and community in the midst of tension and, and, and hardship and daily praxis, daily praxis, um, whether that's reading your Bible or doing or reading your Vedanta or reading your, <laughs> or doing your yoga or or having having sex with someone who you're committed to in a beautiful, meaningful relationship that has boundaries and like all those things are religious acts. How we spend our money and how we are accountable to each other on how we spend our money, both interpersonally and communally, socially. Credit Suisse receiving a inflection, an infusion of cash from the Swiss National Bank. That's got religious overtones to it, right? We all we have to be asking these questions about what does religion mean now more than ever because we live in a world, a capitalist world, that tells us that religion is um, is something over here. Mm-hmm. And it's bounded by these things, but actually religion is everywhere. And so thankfully, in the last several, probably six years of my life, through being in recovery communities, studying my addiction, and then also through really deeply being embraced by queer spiritual communities, uh, in particular, a subculture called the Radical Fairies that's been around since the 1970s, which is, you know, basically me going out to these land commune projects with a bunch of other weirdos who, you know, are men in dresses who can also fix your sink, you know, and like doing this sort of uh, uh, ad hoc religious sort of communal ceremony rituals in the woods, you know, all that kind of weird tangential stuff made me feel uh, able to to come back to religious language and 12 step and recovery groups made me feel uh, that it was not only possible, but uh, necessary if I wanted to survive. Wow. I guess so many questions. Uh, how long? How long? You've been clean for how long now? Can you say? I don't know that that's a personal question. Yeah, I mean, I've been in recovery again since uh, August of 2021. So right, okay. the year preceding that, Preston, from July of 2020 through July through July of 2021, I was uh, homeless for the most part, living uh, 
often on the street, uh, in and out of trap houses, and using meth almost every day. And um, that was during the pandemic. Uh, I had basically tanked all relationships to my family, and, and my, you know, my family still loved me, and all of them, in particular my mother. I mean, I'm, my mother was able to stay connected to me. I don't know how because she, I think her faith and her and her her nature just her, but she stayed connected to me through the really darkest, deepest times of my addiction Mm. uh, and abjection. But yeah, like that, that was the worst year of my life. Mm. It was also, and I keep saying this recently because I want to say it more. It's really true. That year was also the year that I drew closer to God than I've ever been. Wow. Golly. And that was the year that like being out on the street and in homeless camps and among the absolute most dejected and rejected of society, the least of these and walking alone without support, without <clears throat> just being on my own among those people, I experienced God through them and also just within my own self uh, in a deeper and more profound and more <clears throat> desperate and total way than I had ever experienced. And so I think like, yeah, that's um, I, 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 I came back to religious practice and to faith because I God was gracious enough to make it a um, uh, a non-negotiable, something that I had to had to embrace again. Do you would you say you identify as specifically like Christian or evangelical or religious or are you figuring that out or all? Yo, yes to all those. That's that's a resounding yes now. And I I think like what now the thing is if we were gonna if we were gonna sit down and get into like minutia of particular theological, um, you know doctrine or whatever you know uh orthodoxy or like mm-hmm. statements of faith the things you kind of have to sign if you go to a conservative religious college and stuff like that like you know the uh, we would have all kinds of like um confusing uh points of agreement and points of disagreement and like <laughs> i and i think that that's the fact that i know that and am fully aware of that and also still today fully identify as a christian and as an american evangelical and the reason, Preston, is because that's how I was raised. Hmm. That's the world that shaped me. And I now understand today, and I think this is probably the most power, one of the most powerful insights that I've been given in the last couple of years through, through watching other people do this and having to work through it myself, which is that like, I don't have to give any of that up in hmm. order to still um, believe whatever it is that God leads me to believe, like within my own theology and there are lots of points of theology that i that we we would probably share and have overlap in but that's not the most that's not why i identify as a christian or as an american evangelical it's not doctrinal it's cultural Hmm. interesting i mean evangelicalism is such a cultural thing it's it's why so many a growing number at least of friends of mine who would on paper sign off on many things that would be traditionally conceived of the evangelical don't identify that way because of the cultural baggage, especially the, the way it's been politicized. Um, and yeah, I, I'm on a, I'm on the fence, whether the term should be redeemed or ditched. I don't, I don't know. It's not a huge, doesn't keep me up at night, but um, there definitely is, is a certain 
there, yeah, you can't you can't separate evangelicalism from the all the cultural stuff that is that comes with that. You know, for for good or for bad. Again, well, you and I appreciate that. You, yeah. Right, for good or for bad, exactly. And that's the, that's the point, right? Is that like okay? So I remember several years ago, I was living in Portland. I was living at this fabulous communitarian radical you know commune house. I was working as a stripper, having a great time. And my mom, we this house was called the House of Butter. Okay, and every Friday night, you know, we had a Shabbat dinner, Shabbatter. And so at Shabbatter, you know, all of these Butterites, you know, these various people who lived in the house and were connected to the house's sort of social caring network would, would come and everyone would, would bring a dish, you know, and they would have made the dish and we'd all lay them there at the table and we'd get there around sunset and, and, and then we'd circle up you know, around the table and we'd hold hands and everyone would share what they brought. Here's, you know, what, what we brought and here's what it's made of in case there's any allergies, whatever. And then we'd go around the circle and everyone would say if they had a prayer request or not, or if they needed to be uplifted in any particular kind of, you know, spiritual way. And we had a board in the back of the dining room with a map of the world on it. And we would put people's prayer requests and names up there on the world. So and so is in Africa right now fighting for, you know, uh, fighting to uh, help this particular watershed and this river community that needs to be saved from ecological damage. We want to really lift them up, you know, right now. And, um, and I remember one Friday, my mom came to Shabutter. I invited my mom to Shabutter and my sweet, amazing mother, who is an evangelical pastor's daughter and an evangelical pastor's wife came and stood in that circle around the potluck dinner on a Friday night and watched and listened as her son, her queer radical fairy son, who she had been quite sure had lost and left the faith forever in the, the way that I had been raised, stood in a circle with people who gave their prayer requests and then put them up on a prayer ward board and then prayed for each other and then sat down together for a potluck dinner and had conversation about the things in life and our spiritual walks that were meaningful to us. It was a fucking Friday night Bible study. And my mom stood there and wept like she wept wow. because she saw that the ways in which I had been raised and the things that were such sweet, sweet joy and such good medicine to us as a family and me as a kid were still alive in my life. I had found a way to come back to those things in my own way. And, and the thing is, that kind of an experience that hands held around a potluck dinner with a prayer board, that's not going to be that meaningful to people who were raised in a, an environment outside of kind of like, I mean, it could be, it could be, but it's way more likely that I'm able to connect to the divine and to my own best self through that experience because I was raised as an evangelical in the heart of American evangelicalism. That's the way I experience religion. That's the way I experience God. And so here I was in a circle full of a bunch of radical trans activists and Marxists and, you know, outsider sort of people, people who I never would have thought uh, would would be at my church or in my Bible study doing the same format, the same sort of like aesthetic um, praxis. And for me, that was medicine. And that's it's because of my culture. So yes, American evangelicalism is full of um, really ugly, ugly things. And yet, when I am sitting in a bourgeois coffee house in West Hollywood, and a homeless person comes up and starts screaming and banging on the fence, it's not only the fact that I've lived on the streets that allows me to identify with him and have compassion, but it's the fact that I grew up hearing that it is to the least of these, it is to the loss that I have come. Bro, 
Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're, and I, I mean this from the bottom of my heart, you're one of the most enjoyable, honest, authentic people I have in my life. And I know we don't, we've only hung out a few times. Um, I've, you know, um, appreciate you. I have mad respect for your intelligence and especially your creativity. I just love, I just love hearing you talk, bro. Cause just your use of language. I know it's probably natural to you, but I've, you've already said several words that I've never heard of before and I have to go Google right now. So, um, <laughs> Yeah. Love you, bro. Thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. And uh, yeah. Any final words for our audience? Well, I want to say uh, thank you, Preston, for having me. I want to say that you are also just one of my favorite people. Uh, I love you. I love that you and I are both committed to doing the messy work uh, of standing in the middle and asking hard questions and showing love and kindness, openness and and pleasure in each other's company, even when we deeply disagree. Um, I think that you're uh, a good man and I'm proud of you for the work that you're doing. And I'm just glad you're my friend. So thank you for having me on today. Hey friends, have you been blessed or encouraged or challenged by Theology in the Raw? If so, would you consider joining Theology in the Raw's Patreon community? For as little as five bucks a month, you can gain access to a diverse group of Jesus followers who are committed to thinking deeply, loving widely, and having curious conversations with thoughtful people. We have several membership tiers where we where you can receive premium content. For instance, silver level supporters get to ask and vote on the questions for our monthly Patreon only podcast. They also get to see like written drafts of various projects and books I'm working on. And there's other perks for that tier. Gold level supporters get all of this and access to monthly Zoom chats where we basically blow the doors open on any topic they want to discuss. My patrons play a vital role in nurturing the mission of Theology in the Raw. And for me, just personally, interacting with my Patreon supporters has become one of the hidden blessings in this podcast ministry. So you can check out all of the info at patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. That's patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw.